Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. There was a tie atop the 2017 Digital Trend of the Year survey conducted by the USU Digital Folklore Project. The top trends were hashtag MeToo and the phenomenon of fake government social media accounts like at Alt US Nat Park Service. Jeannie Thomas, co-director of the USU Digital Folklore Project, head of the USU English Department, told the Logan Herald Journal that when they first started the project, she thought it would be memes all the time we'd be naming. One of the things this shows me, she says, is how much people engage with political and social justice issues. We're going to talk with Jeannie Thomas and Lynn McNeil, the other co-director of the USU Digital Folklore Project and USU Assistant Professor of English, about uh, those trends along with hashtag Take knee, second on this year's list. We'll also talk about Kofefe and much more. And we're asking you for your selection for top digital trend of the year or top phenomenon, what's impressed you on social media or online this year. And the best way to get to us, well, I guess there it's a tie, three ways to get to us. 1-800-826-1495, 800-826-1495. Your call through to us, toll free. You can email us, upraccess at gmail.com, upraccess at gmail.com. And you can tweet at us. Our uh, Twitter handle is at UPR Access, at UPR Access. So we welcome in uh, Jeannie Thomas. Welcome back. Hey, good to see you. You need to get your uh, microphone there. Uh, thanks for joining us. And uh, Lynn McNeil, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Um, and uh, let's, uh, I guess we'll start with you, Jeannie. What, uh, what is the Digital Trend of the Year survey? Um, what we do is with a group of undergraduates and graduate students at USU, and this is unique, we're the only program in the country that does this, we track digital trends. And we do it by month, and we archive them, so there'll always be a record of it. And then at the end of the year, we gather the research team together, and we come up with a list of um, digital trends, and we send it to a, a panelist of judges across the nation who are digital media and folklore scholars, and they select the digital trend of the year. Hmm. These are essentially folklorists. Yes, Lynn. absolutely. Yeah. We have academic folklorists and public folklorists and people who study a lot of different things, and we want to sort of crowdsource this at every level. That's our goal. So people, it's not just the research team who can recommend ideas for us. We welcome tweets from all comers or Facebook posts or Instagram posts. People suggest to us things that they've noticed. You can tweet the Digital Folklore Project Twitter account, which is at digfolkproj, or you can use the hashtag digital trend of the year. And at the end of the year, our research team compiles all of these things. We get into wonderful fights and arguments as everyone defends their favorite trends, what's going to make it onto the ballot this year, and then that ballot goes out to folklorists. And uh, let's say I'll quote you, Jeannie Thomas. You said, uh, the internet is today's setting for folklore that was once shared over back fences. Internet functions like a digital campfire that draws people together to share their stories and lore. So this gets me into my question of, apart from this being fun, wh why? What's the reason behind this, compiling um, these? The internet is like any other form or any other conduit for folklore. It's, it's where you see human beings in their kind of natural, relaxed state. And also, because they're in that state, you see things they really care about. And you see things that are, are meaningful to them enough that they'll take a little bit of time to share a tweet or share a meme about something. So if you want to you know, get um, a handle on the pulse of a culture, check out what's what they're tweeting about, what's mm. going, what memes are they sharing, you know, what makes them laugh, right. what do they really get passionate about? 
And uh, so uh, I think last year's survey was a little, maybe a little more relaxed. Uh, if you can call creepy clowns. Yeah, I don't know how relaxing well, that was. We got a meme, you know. We yeah. we often get hashtags, but we yeah. got a meme. Yeah. So that yeah. was I was excited. We got yeah. a meme. And uh, I think uh, we could all say that the 2017 was a lot more political, uh, which which is kind of odd because 2016 was a election year, but now uh, you know the, the halves of the country are are really at odds with the first year of uh, President Trump's presidency. So we did have some political. Uh, things. In fact, uh, the the two the ties at the top are are political. Yeah, and I think it is. It was up for debate certainly among the Digital Folklore Project research team members whether or not creepy clowns was a political commentary or not. Um, and we did have some politics there as well. But I think this year we see something a little bit more of a grim determination emerging in the 2017 trends. We certainly had some fun trends. We divide the candidates for Digital Trend of the Year into two general categories. One is social justice and one is what we call serious fun because they're fun, but as has always been the case with the fun forms of folklore in our lives like jokes and riddles, um, oftentimes that's making a somewhat serious commentary as well. So serious right. fun and social justice um, were our two are our two categories. And this year, I really felt that that we saw some some serious point making. People were were doubling down on no, I mean it. This mm. is this is what I really want to say. Mm. Uh, so, Jeannie Thomas, uh, let's let's hold hashtag Me Too. I mean, that's been all over. And if I if if you were asked me to predict what the top of the list would be, I would have said Me Too. Us too. Um, yep. that, yeah. <laughs> me too. <clears throat> um, but uh, the 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 one that tied. Yeah. Uh, the the uh, phenomenon of uh, fake government. Twitter handles. Yeah, and I that came as a surprise to us, and I loved that. I love it when we get surprised, and um, it that was a fun one to watch and a fun one to research. It started in November the the previous year with Badlands National Park, and it was a kind of just the cheekiness in it was fun, just kind of tweaking the government, and then it really took off um, when during the well right after the inauguration um, they started putting out numbers of people who were at the inauguration that the president didn't like. And then there was that moment in January where they're actually, and it made news, they said, turning off Twitter, can't have your Twitter, which made people very angry. And when I was researching this one, I found great quotes like, you can shut down our Twitter, but you'll never take our free time. <laughs> and so you just imagine these, these um, science geeks, many of whom were upset because they were told not to tweet about scientific findings about global warming, which they were seeing in, in settings like national parks because research is done there by a lot of scientists. And so they were mad about that. So they set up these alternative accounts to tweet that out. And it, it became definitely about politics, but also bigger than that, kind of David and Goliath, um, the, the small geek at his computer against the big government telling him what to do. So it had those kinds of, of interesting dynamics, I mm. thought. Yeah, it's, it's, it's tapping into the broader political and cultural issues, but it kind of takes it down to the personal. Yeah, and right. I thought it brought up the Streisand effect, which was this really interesting moment in early 2000, again with scientists, and they were surveying the California coastline for erosion, and they put the video online, so it's publicly available. Well, six people had looked at it, but then Streisand decided to sue because her house was in that video. 
And when she decided to sue, uh, um, it went to, from six to hundreds of thousands of people viewing it. And so just the fact that they were being shut down and told not to do this, then that brought them more attention. Like like Streisand's attorney saying, hey, we don't want her a picture of her house on the beach in California online. I think of the six views, four had been theirs, the attorneys. <laughs> and then it gets you thousands, of, much more attention when you try to oppress people. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah, yeah. Uh, Lynn, I wonder if, before we go on with the, with the others, so it, go to Me Too next, but uh, I wonder if this dialogue has changed because it, it seems like uh, in the Twitterverse, um, anyone can get attention, uh, but you but you have to obey some rules. You have to be outrageous or you have to, you know, well, something else has to happen. You know, the president has learned this. And so... Very true. And, and I th- there's a lot of individuals who've learned it, but I think one of the things that that taking the perspective of a folklorist helps us to see is that among the many things that the internet does for us, one of the things it does is it gives people a collective voice and a non-institutional collective voice. Our institutions have always had platforms for broadcasting mass messages and individual everyday people have not. We have on on some level, we've always had gossip and rumor and legend, but now we have a platform where everyday people on this real grassroots level cannot just speak as an individual, but speak as a collective. And I feel like the the alt government agency Twitter accounts is a real sign of that. People saying, hey, you can't reserve this platform, Twitter, the internet, for just the president or for just corporations or just institutions. You can't prohibit us from saying what we think. You can tell us we can't do it, sure, on our official accounts. We're going to go make another one. We're going to call it Alt National Park or Alt CDC or Alt EPA or Rogue NASA. And we're going to say what we think people want to hear. And and when we start to see that pick up that communal collective nature, that's really when it starts to fall into the realm of what folklorists would call folklore. Mm. There is a rogue NASA? There is. There is a rogue. I think at this point, uh, just recently in the news, um, the CDC joined up. There was a news report on the words that are not prohibited or the not prohibited that are prohibited that are not allowed in CDC reports anymore. And I remember one of our research team members from the Digital Folklore Project tweeted and said, all right, well, it's just we're waiting for it. Where's the alt CDC? And mm. we have it now. And okay. one of the first tweets they made was to say the seven words that they're not supposed to be saying. Mm. Part, yeah. of, part of the thing that's so satisfactory about this trend is that uh, the people who do this, who set up these alternative accounts and tweet out what they're thinking, are doing exactly what the president is doing. You know, people are saying, oh, he goes rogue on Twitter and he just says what he feels. And so they're, they're in fact, engaging in that as well. So that's, that's part of the fun, I think, here. Yeah. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, I want to talk about Me Too. Uh, we maybe get into the origin of the of the hashtag, and then it, it has, I mean, you know, what's more than viral? You know, super viral? It's, it's, per, it's pervaded our culture and, and is, is having some, some good effects, I think. So we'll talk about Me Too and, and much else. We'll talk about Kofefe, talk about uh, Take a Knee, and uh, Avocado Toast. We'll, <laughs> we'll try desperately to, uh, to be hip and millennial. Absolutely. Uh, more following this break. 
The rainbow hues of produce at a grocery store and farmer's market aren't just beautiful, they're also good for long-term health. Many brightly colored fruits and vegetables are rich in bioactives, which are chemicals naturally found in certain fruits that promote health, prevent inflammation, and block some pathways that may lead to cancer. Foods that are rich in bioactives include broccoli, green tea, tart cherries, and even purple corn. Researchers in USU's Department of Nutrition, Dietetics, and Food Services are involved in several studies aimed at understanding how bioactive chemicals affect the environment in your gut and overall health. Support for Ag Matters on Utah Public Radio is provided in part by our members and by Utah State University's College of Agriculture and Applied Sciences, offering more than 72 degrees with courses available at USU campuses throughout the state and online. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking about the 2017 Digital Trends of the Year. Uh, we're, uh, that comes from a survey that's conducted uh, annually by the USU Digital Folklore Project. We have the uh, co-directors here. Lynn McNeil is Assistant Professor of English at USU, and uh, Jeannie Thomas is the head of the English Department here at uh, USU. We want to know what, uh, what, what you would say the trend of the year is, or maybe just the coolest phenomenon you saw on the Internet or on social media this year, or maybe the most disturbing, most memorable uh, you can tweet that to us at UPR Access, at UPR Access. You can call us, 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495. Or you can email us to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. Uh, so before we get into um, the hashtag me too, what's what's all this about avocado toast? <laughs> what is all this yeah. about avocado toast? You know, it, it came up this year as... Um, something of a backlash against millennials, the idea that millennials um, don't have any money or are not able to afford to buy houses, something that's obviously impacting the economy right now, was boiled down to this idea that they're spending their money on the wrong things, like overpriced avocado toast. <laughs> and it's become a meme, obviously, it's become a hashtag, it's become an image. But the idea behind it, I mean, one, if you haven't had avocado toast, it's delicious. It's mm. just a it's a wonderful food, healthy fats, good whole grain bread. Everyone should try it. But it's also become this locus of pushback against the idea that millennials are frivolous or um, not careful with money or are living some delusional lives of of excess that's denying them the the good, stable realities that the generations before them were able to achieve. Okay. Yeah, and it came about because a billionaire said, well, you know, you millennials, if you'd just save your money instead of buying all that avocado toast, <laughs> you know, you'd be much better off. So it's it's part of this generational stuff that that seems new because it involves avocados, toast, and millennials, but it's gone on forever. It's just one generation mm. basically saying, my generation is better than your generation, nan, 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 nan. <laughs> right, right. And so then millennials being very adept at the interwebs – then take it up as a meme and mock it and mm. make fun of it. Like, right. how many avocado toasts will it take to buy a house? And <laughs> how do I budget for that? And yeah. so there are all sorts of memes. So it's become a badge of honor for them to play they, with it. They've co-opted it. Yeah. 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 And there is, there's an overall theme um, online this past year of sort of a, 
a tug of war between baby boomers and millennials where there was a, a wonderful article that I loved that came out um, that took all the headlines from the year that used the word millennial and replaced it with like 50 year old white man. <laughs> and, and just to see how ridiculous it is to brand an entire swath of people with, you know, particular stereotypes. Right, right. <laughs> Very good. Um, so let's talk about uh, hashtag uh, me too. What's what's the what's the origin of this? This 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 goes back, right? And yeah, actually, earliest 2007, African American activist Tarana Burke. And then um, when the actress Rose McGowan tweeted recently, this past fall about being raped by Harvey Weinstein, um, then Alyssa Mono, Milano, I always confuse her with the cookie. Sorry, <laughs> Alyssa. Anyway, <laughs> that, that's a local thing because we like those Pepperidge Farm cookies. Anyway, I digress. Um, anyway, um, then she picked up the old hashtag and it spread. And it spread because it's a personal narrative, which is a folklore genre that so many women had. And it was a way to reference quickly that personal narrative. It was also very clever because it's a painful personal narrative. And you could put on your Twitter account or your Facebook account or whatever, me too, and you could tell your story or not. And so it, it was very useful in that regard because it allowed people to say, yes, I have that story, but it didn't force them to tell the story. Yeah. And it's been, uh, it's been very effective. And I don't know, Lynn, um, why this moment and, and how, has that, how has social media and the inter- Internet played into this, amplified this? I think this whole year, and I think it's actually exemplified not just in the Me Too hashtag, but in the alt-government agency accounts, this is the year of people just refusing to be silenced, I think. The, the, the push and pull of who has a voice, what kind of voice do they have, what kind of availability do they have to speak to a broad audience has been an enormous theme over this past year. And I think Time Magazine having its person of the year be the collective group and using the term the silence breakers is really what we're seeing stand out here. We are definitely hitting a fever pitch in people saying, I am not going to be quiet about mm. this anymore. And clearly a, it was a confluence of events that, that came together this year that really led, I think, to me too rising to the top this year. One of the things we find often in the digital trend of the year is that it's not a trend, not always a trend, that is brand new to that year. It's something that comes into its own that year. So Me Too, as Jeannie was saying, has been around for a decade as a concept, as a movement, as a way for women to bring their stories together. And this was the year that that it really started to shine. Mm-hmm. So there's an element of I will not be silenced, right? There's also an element for whatever reasons, I guess things came together that women are being heard there 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 are actually consequences in in this past year and continuing yeah it was it was um kind of a rosa parks moment you know that moment when enough people just said hey we're not doing this like this anymore and the internet gives you a megaphone where you can do that and people can pick it up and because so many people picked it up so many everyday people as well as famous people that then gave it you know, the power of the tidal wave then, all those voices. Yeah. There seems to be a sense definitely, definitely this year that people are just fed up, that that things have gotten so 
weird and so new and so different so fast that that it's a good time to start changing some of the old ways of doing things. Mm. Uh, so a platform, and this is a platform, you know, a, kind of a democratic platform, small d, right? Um, social media and the internet. Um, all sorts of voices can be heard. And so now we have a debate uh, on whether the platform, the gatekeepers, should um, censor some speech, you know, uh, shut down that alt-right tweet. Yeah. I, I don't know what you... I, think? I think that would be a hopeless endeavor. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure it could happen. I'm sure it would be possible on Twitter to to prevent speech. We would an, a new network would pop up. People would leave Twitter and people would go wherever it is that they have the availability to speak. And that's something that that people have always done. I mean, the sort of underground networks, um, subculture networks, um, insider ways of knowing things have always been present in in the way that people communicate on that folk level. People have always found ways to talk about things they weren't supposed to talk about, share information that isn't supposed to be shared, and get those ideas and those those voices out there. So I think it would be I think it would be a very bad idea, probably for for Twitter as a business <laughs> mm-hmm. to to attempt to do that. I mean, and regulating hate speech, that's not what I'm talking about. That's a different a different element altogether. But to to decide who has access to Twitter and who doesn't on a broad scale, I think would would fail. Hmm. Um, I, I wonder, um, well, I've, I've lost that train of thought, so we'll wonder about that. Uh, <laughs> we'll wonder about that when I re- recall that. Uh, so what's, uh, what, what else, uh, uh, take a knee was made the list. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Again, started last year and just kept going and going. And again, with some political and presidential overtones, the, the president weighing in on that and seeing it really, I think, as a moment to advance some uh, political agendas just and, and using it that way. And then again, it made it bigger. More people started doing it. More people started responding. This one is, is clearly overtly political, although, um, it sort of lost, it was originally a protest about African-American experience in America, particularly at the hands of police. This year it sort of lost that and became more generalized and political. Uh, so it was interesting. And that was in part because of the president tweeting about it and talking about it. It is, sorry, and it is fascinating to watch one trend serve so many different purposes and take on so many different forms. This take a knee was actually on the ballot for last year's digital trend of the year, which is the only time we've had one trend show up twice. And it really was because it was a different, a different beast this year than it was before. And I think we've even seen it even after it died down this year, I I just saw it crop up back again in my social media feeds as um, president Trump has encouraged peaceful protest in the middle East. That's now showing up, with a lot of images of taken e saying, "Hey, wait a minute! Why, why do other people get to peacefully protest, and our peaceful protests are condemned or mm. shut down?" Right. Um, another one that I think made the list is Kofefe, yes. which is a which is a fun mistake. <laughs> the thumbs flying too fast, I guess, for the president. Uh, he said uh, something about negative press Kofefe, yeah, which, which we think probably meant coverage, but we don't. Despite know for sure. constant negative press. Kofefe. Right. 
So this became a, a thing, and, and uh, Sean Spicer, uh, the press secretary at the time, famously said, uh, the president and a few uh, close uh, people to him know what it means, and, and nobody else knows what it means. Yeah, this one, another fun one. This came out in May last year, and when I was um, researching these after the judges announced or sent their ballots in, um, I saw a headline that I thought really captured some of what's fun about this, and it said, uh, Trump tweet unites a puzzled nation. (laughs) 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 Often people see his tweets as divisive, but everyone was, well, did he mean this? What did he mean? Everyone was scratching their heads and trying to figure out what it was. (laughs) Yeah, and in in that way that serious fun is both fun and serious, I think it, it became emblematic of this new means of official communication from the president of the United States. This, it's a, you know, it's the opposite of the tailored, you know, carefully written, edited, revised official speech. This is off the cuff communication with all of its vagaries and mistakes. Yeah. I remembered what I was going to ask before. Um, I was going to ask about this, this fight over what's true and what's not. We have the whole fake news thing. We have a, 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 a debate now. This has been going on for quite some time. And it seems to be escalating. Um, the president famously, uh, stuff he doesn't like, he accuses it of being fake news. Um, so my question is uh, where this is fought out in social media and on the Internet, and specifically how millennials are handling this. This, you know, They're, they're our future. You know, We've- this is a thing. This is actually a topic that I've been researching that I'm really, really interested in because fake news is is not new, surprisingly. We have had false information, if that's how we're thinking of it, um, circulating on a regular basis as long as there have been people to share information. So some of the main scholars who've been studying fake news are scholars of urban legends or contemporary legends and rumor because that's how this information goes around. And what's interesting is there there's so many different levels on which fake news can be shared. And social media really blurs some of those lines. These days we have fake news that is intentionally malicious. That There are people being paid to create fake news that sends certain messages out there. But there are also people unintentionally sharing information. One of the things that interests me is, is who we think of as the source of information on social media. I had a, a very telling personal experience with this where a, a good friend of mine posted appropriately, a list of websites that were deemed um, not true. And I thought that was a great list. It said it was compiled by a university professor. I didn't double check that. I just liked the list. So I posted it on social media and a good friend of mine shared my post. And a third friend came along and said, hey, um, how do we know this is credible information? And the friend of mine who had shared it said, well, Lynn McNeil posted it. That's good enough for me. And I kind of went, oh, man, (laughs) it really shouldn't be (laughs) because I didn't check that at all. And that was a that was sort of a light bulb moment for me in that none of us went to the original source of that. None of us went to see what website produced this. Is this a real person? Is this a person with credentials? Is this a person who I should be listening to? We all perceived the source as each other. And that's a big part of this fake news thing is we we can speak about it as though we're all being duped by photoshopped web pages, but we're not. We're hearing it from our friends. We're hearing it from our coworkers, from our family members. And it's being pitched to us in these short kernel forms of, oh, hey, did you hear what the president said this morning? I don't fact check 
my dad when he says, do you hear what the president said this morning? I take it as I assume he heard it from a reputable source. So there's real there's some real nuanced stuff that that we need to be thinking about with regard to this this fake news question. I think on the whole, shutting down websites that are intentional and malicious is a really good start. But we all have to be much more critical, not just of the news we disagree with, but of the news that we agree with. Mm. So the moral of the story here is always fact check all your relatives. Yes. You know, they're the most suspect group out there. (laughs) You never know what they're going to feed you. (laughs) Absolutely. That's right. That's right. Don't take it as gospel. Um, And a lot of people are, you know, speaking of relatives, a lot of people are just avoiding certain topics now. It's it's you know, the, it's verboten, right? Yeah. You don't don't bring it up. Um, I wonder just just one more thing on on fake news. Um, it used to be in the in the you know quote unquote good old days, and I don't know if they ever, ever were good good old days. It was it was curated, right? You had mm. sources you trusted. And, yep. you know, there was three networks and you had the evening news. You had the certain newspapers. It was there was sort of, you know, this is especially what liberals look back on fondly and, and uh, say it used to be we all agreed on everything. Maybe we didn't. Maybe it wasn't the yep. good old days. But now it's all fractured and, and uh, there, there, there aren't gatekeepers. Yeah, I actually think that what's happening now is far more realistic. I think this is it has always been fractured. We just weren't able to see it. It wasn't. It wasn't obviously fractured. We had nominal authorities on on these things, and certainly, you know, the that sense of authority was pervasive. And I I know the news, but there's there's always been people who had their own take on it, and now all of those people, the on the ground people experiencing all of this stuff, have the same platform that journalists do. Actually, there was a TEDx talk about this by Matt LaPlante here at USU um, that was excellent about this idea that we are all doing the work of journalists now. Um, And of course, in many ways, we always were. Now we get to broadcast it. Hmm. I just do want to give a plug for journalists, though. I I think one of the things, interestingly, that this moment of fake news and all these voices out there has shown a lot of people is how important journalists are. Because there's a process that journalists do that, that people don't do. They would have checked their sources. Mm-hmm. They fact check. They have to have a certain number of sources before they'll run it. You know, when you understand how journalism works, traditional journalism, then you're like, okay, I think this is a good source. You can critique various things about it, but one of the things that all these voices has taught me is how much I value the hard work and digging that journalists do do that, you know, um, Genie Sixpacks over here doesn't do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't do that. <laughs> right, right. You have to find some people you trust, right? Yeah. Because we don't have the time to vet all the sources and, mm-hmm. yeah. and do all that. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's why I think journalists are so important in this moment where people do. There are a lot of voices. Things are changing. People have a lot of questions. Yeah. Well, let's take another break. And when we come back, we'll uh, get to the more. We'll get to get more from the list of digital trends of the year for 2017. We're talking with co-directors of the USU Digital Folklore Project, Jeannie Thomas and Lynn McNeil. We hope to talk to you as well or hear from you. You can reach us uh, via Twitter, at UPR Access. That's our handle, at UPR Access. And uh, you can also reach us by phone to 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495. What's the uh, most interesting thing you saw on the Internet or social media this uh, past year, the most disturbing, the most memorable? 
Um, or you can uh, go to upraxcess at gmail.com and email us, upraxcess at gmail.com. When we come back, uh, we will uh, bring forward, usually we do our Gina Wickwar commentaries at the end, um, the, she's commenting on uh, studies that are showing, uh, disturbing to some, that are showing that young people are on their phones, uh, as Gina characterizes it, too much. And I think that's uh, that would be the characterization of, uh, of many people of a certain generation. And uh, so we'll hear that commentary and then uh, talk about that and uh, more digital trends for your following this break. Next time on Ask Me Another, we're joined by actor Luca Kane. He stars in the upcoming Saturday Church. The film follows the plight and liberation of Ulysses, a closeted, genderqueer teen from the Bronx who's trying to make sense of his identity. And we challenge contestants to an audio game featuring whistling that won't get you in trouble. So join me, Ophira Eisenberg, for NPR's Hour of Puzzles, Word Games, and Trivia. Join us Saturday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. This Week in This American Life. Drew picked up her ninth grader and his friend from school, right after she read her son's texts. They were so happy that day when they got in the car. And all I'm thinking is, oh my God, it's just in a couple of minutes when I have to turn left. That's all I kept thinking about. It's just going to all come crashing down, and I don't know if I'm strong enough to do this. That's this week. Join us Saturday morning at 11 on Utah Public Radio. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams, and I'm joined by Lynn McNeil and Jeannie Thomas. They're co-directors of the USU Digital Folklore Project, and uh, they uh, have released the 2017 Digital Trend of the Year survey, uh, which they conduct every year. We've talked about at Alt US Nat Park Service, another uh, fake government uh, handles. We've talked about the hashtag MeToo and uh, hashtag uh, Take a Knee talked about Kofefe and avocado toast. Um, so what uh, what are uh, what are a couple of the other uh, trends that made the list? I like the floor is lava. Oh, yes. That that made our um, initial list. It didn't it didn't do well in the in the final round, but um, and I was brought to my attention we worked with a group of high school students last week and did had them do their digital trends and that one came out on top. And I like that one because it's basically a folk game. And there are a zillion variants on it. Mm-hmm. But um, what it is is you try not to walk on the floor. Right, and because the floor is lava. The right. floor yeah. is lava. And so there are very complex, very highly produced videos on the web you can see about this. But I, being interested in folklore, like the one, like the one where it's a bunch of splicing together of kids. They'll be walking somewhere and one of them will shout, the floor is lava. <laughs> and it'll be in a city park and the other one will run in and jump in a garbage can or mm-hmm. something. And it's just the slapstick humor of it is mm-hmm. very appealing and the folk nature of it. And I totally understood why high school kids were into it because they have all this energy. And, you know, um, here's a digital trend that gets you moving. Yep. Mm-hmm. It, it is. It's fun to see how often digital trends you know, transcend the internet. So, so often it's things that you actually do in the real world, in real life, that the internet really is a is a medium for the the sharing of more than the setting in which it in which it totally happens. Though one of my favorite outgrowths of the Flores Lava is that um, at the University of Leicester they actually wrote a scientific journal 
and want everyone to know that you could never actually play it because the air temperature above lava would kill us <laughs> before the lava did. So, Be, being pedantic, sucking exactly. all the fun out of it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, right. yeah. Another one that um, got you up and moving was that we looked at that made the list, but again didn't do, didn't make the final list. Was the Get Out Challenge? Oh, yeah. And um, that comes from the movie, and these are like inside jokes. If you have to explain them, which we have to do, it is our sad lot in life to explain. <laughs> jokes and then you lose it so you have to really get on and google it but after seeing the movie a bunch of kids went out there's a scene in which one of the characters runs straight out of main character and then veers away and it's a kind of tense scene in the movie but when um everyday citizens do it again joe Sixpack does it it's funny mm-hmm. and goofy but you kind of have to be there and you had to see the movie yep but they're out running around straight yeah. into the camera. Yeah. So, you know, it was kind of a healthy year besides the year Absolutely. about talking. We had avocado toast. We had lots of running and yeah. not yeah. walking on the floor. And yeah. <laughs> yeah. And a lot of a lot of Internet culture is about getting it, is about catching the joke, understanding the reference. For someone who didn't know about the Kofefe tweet, suddenly, you know, this huge deluge of of people referencing this strange word, you're left going, what? What's going on? And it makes you want to dig. It makes you want to find out what's happening. It makes you want to be in on the joke. And that's that's a lot of the impetus here is that we feel sort of this sense of connection mm-hmm. when when we understand these sometimes obscure references. It's interesting to finger on the polls, right? So what what are some of the other differences between the high school survey and the and and the and the elder survey. <laughs> My favorite moment, Lynn, was when the Lynn was there. We were both doing this when this 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 young looking kid. I asked, you know, what memes do you remember? What hashtags? And he yells at me, "Why weren't you at elf practice?" <laughs> I was like, I didn't know we had we just, it. Am we, I an elf? I didn't know. We looked. We were, I mean, we were very obviously too grown up to be in on that one. It turns out it's from um, the very, very old Rudolph. Um, be careful. This is my childhood special. we're talking about. Uh, so, not that old. Um, <clears throat> but but there's a, a throwaway line in that. This is the, the stop motion Rudolph special. Um where one of the elves comes in and says, why weren't you at elf practice? And is all angry. And it, it's been memefied. It's that line that that saying has been turned into a meme and a video and a hashtag. Um, a, a subsequent Google search. I was <laughs> floored to see how much elf practice stuff was out yeah. there. That was really a, a sign that that, you know, just as with offline culture, online culture is so subdivided into mm-hmm. into different folk groups and subcultures that I'm sure we're we're at hitting the lowest common denominator with our digital trend of the year. We should be right. involving far more high school students. Yeah, it was fun to watch them too because um, the teachers were sitting there saying, we've never heard of any of this stuff. And the students were kind of like, yeah, we know. <laughs> no. So it was, yeah. it was fun to watch that generational stuff yeah. happening. There's always generational dividing lines, right? It's yeah. perpetrated by the, by the youth. They want to differentiate themselves. And it is fun to, to be able to tell even college students, I know in my digital folklore class, that this is not a class that you put your phone away for. This is a class that you pull your phone out mm. and that's going to help you contribute. The stuff you know, the information that you interact with every day in your social media is valuable and important. That's not mm. a thing that students get told a lot, so it's yeah. fun right. to get to say it. And then we also say, but hey, while you're looking at all that stuff, think critically, yeah. think analytically, what's going on here? 
What's yeah. it mean? Why is it significant? Is it significant? Right. That's a perfect segue to our Gina Wickwar commentary. Let's hear this about four minutes long. This is, uh, we'd usually hear this at the end of the hour, but I want to, this will provoke a discussion. I'm sure uh, Gina is uh, citing some studies worrying about uh, young people being on their phones too much, deleterious effects of that. Um, here's our commentator, Gina Wickwar. There appears to be a national dialogue, a dialogue among many factions, about the effect of iPhones on young people. The general consensus in the essays I've read is, it ain't totally good. Various books have also come out on this subject, such as The Cyber Effect by Mary Aiken and iGen by Jean Twenge. They, too, come out to the fairly gloomy conclusion that something must be done to slow down the use of smartphones before it gets more out of hand than it has. A long article about Apple's role in this appeared in Monday's Wall Street Journal, titled Investors Prod Apple on Child iPhone Use. The piece pulls no punches as it tells the story of a leading activist, investor, and a pension fund group who say the smartphone maker, quote, needs to respond to what some see as a genuine public health crisis of youth phone addiction, unquote. They aren't out to harm Apple, they say, but rather they're urging the company to proactively examine its role in this stew pot and maybe take some action to pull back a little. They think this approach will generate goodwill and keep consumers loyal to Apple. The article also says there are concerns about increased rates in teen depression and suicide and worry that smartphones are replacing that good old-fashioned face-to-face thing we used to call talking. Of course, Google, Amazon.com, Facebook, and Snapchat are also facing questions about their broad reach into everybody's life. The book's columns press space are all clearly seeing a generational threat here, and I, for one, am glad it's recognized. Now, some of you are probably snorting. Well, remember how your parents thought you'd go to Hades in a handcart if you listened to too many Elvis Presley records, too many Beatles songs, too many Rolling Stone albums? Yeah, I remember, but I was limited. I still listened to Dion while I wrote my book report and curled up with the Temptations while I did algebra, yet somehow I managed to graduate graduate from high school without taking my own life. And not one of my 50s and 60s cohorts went down that road either. And oddly, it didn't lead us on the path to perdition. In fact, lots of us today can't get enough Verdi, Mozart, or Puccini. The difference, in my opinion? We listen to Nat King Cole, Little Richard, Ray Charles, Buddy Holly, Fats Domino, Bill Haley, The Platters, Johnny Cash, Patsy Cline, and others only for about one or two hours a day. The rest of the time was spent at school, studying, reading, or earning scout badges. Compare that with this statistic. Today's teens are found to look at, listen to, or use their smartphones up to 80 times a day, and they engage for several minutes at a clip. And this is on average. I'm happy there are concerned folks out there scolding Apple and urging it to be more socially aware. But here's another thing. My parents' firm limit on the time I could indulge in music listening was a great idea, which makes me wonder, why don't today's parents put a firm limit on the time their teens can indulge in iPhoning, tweeting, Googling, or Facebooking? And a corollary thought. Why can't parents and teachers get together and demand that smartphones be put away in a sealed, locked, and chained box during class? The rule was state that 
Phones could be one used during class breaks, two during lunch, and three at recess, but they could not be used in class. Someone really needs to write a letter to Apple Inc. with this rocket science advice, and it too can get behind this amazingly smart smartphone rule. It would certainly cut down on that 80 times a day iPhone use real, real fast. Um, just to check my math, I'm going to Google to see how many minutes are in a waking day and then divide that by. 80. This is Gina Wickwar. So that's our commentator, Gina Wick, uh, commentator Gina Wickwar. And uh, I wanted to play that because I suspected that you two would have a differing point of view. Uh, we can discuss this. Uh, but the, uh, first of all, the studies. I mean, there, you know, there are studies out there that are, the, the, the conclusion is that uh, the, the excessive um, device use, checking 80 times a day, uh, by the way, that probably describes me too, mm-hmm. um, is is perhaps having a, a bad effect. So first of all, the studies. Well, I think that, that, uh, nothing that I'm about to say <laughs> is to deny that there are absolutely people in the world who spend too much time on their phones. And there are people in the world who spend too much time at work and people in the world who spend too much time reading and people in the world who spend too much time doing just about anything. There is always extreme cases of anything going on. There's actually also a lot of studies that show some benefits of some of the internet culture. Um, there's actually a number of studies that talk about how the students, students, young people who are most exposed to texting and online communication <clears throat> actually have higher literacy rates than students who are prevented from communicating in text messages and things. So I, I would not deny the presence of any of these studies other than to say that there's probably an equal number of studies that say, don't panic, this isn't a crisis. Mm, okay. Uh, Jeannie, what about um, isn't actual interpersonal communication, isn't that, the, isn't that the gold standard? Shouldn't we be promoting that? I would say it all depends on the context. Yeah. And so um, it's what your situation is. I saw a, a funny... I think it was a tweet about this where um, some millennial or 20-something teenager, I can't remember what the age range was, was home for the holidays and was getting the phone lecture, you use your phone too much. And his comment was, so this means that when the people of the older generations around me get bored or anxious, they turn to each other and talk like I turn to my phone. He was basically saying, we're doing the same thing. It's just a different medium for communication. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, I think we've known for a long time you, you regulate stuff. Like, you have you have rules. At my house, it's dinner table, put the phone away. But then sometimes there's a Google moment, and we're all snatching our phones because it came up in dinner table conversation. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's, it's, it's parenting, which you have to make those decisions, what's appropriate for your own children yeah. and what rules you want to put in place. So you're saying there there are times when we put the phones away, right? What about and I'm this is where I I knew you both of you would disagree because you because you mm-hmm. mentioned it before we played the Gino Wickmore commentary, uh, this idea of putting it away in class. I I think uh, for me a big part of the issue that that I have with this um, being on the phone is bad thing is this idea that there is some sort of monolithic activity called being on the phone which there isn't really. I do a a thing with my students when I teach digital folklore. Um, I will start off the class sort of in an unexpected way. I'll stand in front of the classroom and be holding my phone, ignoring the students, typing on it. 
until it gets awkward. You know, this is not something students are expecting their instructor to be doing. So I will ask them, what am I doing right now? And they'll all say, you're on your phone. Or some of them will just say, you're being rude. And I'm like, okay, right, that's true. But what am I doing? And then they start throwing out the possibilities of what I could be doing. I could be checking my email. I could be reading The New Yorker. I could be writing a letter to my grandma. I could be shopping. I could be looking words up in the dictionary. I could be doing my banking. I could be, you know, preparing a recipe for that night's dinner. The, the problem with describing being on the phone as a singular activity is that it's not. It's diversity masquerading as this unified activity. Um, and so it's dangerous to say, we check our phones 80 times a day. Yeah, well, so 10 of those times I'm reading a novel on my Kindle app, and five of those times I'm texting my mom to tell her I love her, and eight of those times I'm, you know, making sure I've got enough money in the bank so that I can then go grocery shopping. And, and all, I mean, so many different activities happen on this one device that it's really inaccurate to, to act as though being on your phone is a singular activity that is taking up all of our time. It's a it's a multitude of activities that we happen to use a singular device for. And I think it's really, really important that we remember that because oftentimes we are pro-socially engaging with others with our phones. And in fact, the cell phone has allowed us to bring the power of the internet to our face-to-face communications. We don't have to be at a desk, at our desktop computer, you know, alone in our office or at home in order to access the internet. There's, in fact, um, some folklorists now doing really interesting research on the way that phones have brought humor back into face-to-face settings, where if you look at a bunch of young people interacting with their phones, sure, sometimes they're all furiously staring at their phone typing, at least 75% of the time, they're passing their phones around or mm. they're holding their phones up for each other to look at. They're, they're talking about maybe Flora's Lava memes and coming up with their best ones and holding them up and saying, check out this one. And then the person next to them says, oh, but check out this one. And they're not emailing those links to each other. They're showing them to each other. It's like sitting around reading magazines with your friends, holding up the pictures that you find in them for each other. So uh, I just, I really struggle with with this idea that we're on our phones too much is like saying you are doing all the activities of a normal day too much. Mm-hmm. So the, the the world is just uh, good and bad is, yeah. has followed us to the internet, I guess, to, to our phones. Uh, did you, you need similarly have, I guess your Lynn has a very helpful outlook on, on, the, on the younger generation. Yeah. yeah, mine's similar too. And I think this issue comes up in the classroom a lot. Like, like Gina was talking about in her commentary, it's certainly a concern. It comes up in the classroom. The other thing that I think is a real worry is kids dealing with bullying and body image, particularly mm-hmm. kids. And that's where it gets really concerning. And guess what? It gets really concerning in real life, too. So that's an area where at all levels of culture, at all uh, communication conduits, we need to help kids with. We need to help them work through that. We need to help them know how to navigate it and avoid it and all that stuff. Classroom stuff, phones are a hot issue. College professors, put away your cell phones. And I see student comments in response to that saying they're treating us like, you know, we're children and and all this stuff. And and then you see in class the student who is doing their banking and doing everything else but paying attention to you. So I, I tell my students you can use your phones in this class, but you're not invisible. I see you. I know who you are. And if you're being yeah. rude, I know that. Yeah. And I register that. And I've had to come up with a system to sort of say, here's what we're going to do. 
Yeah. And sometimes I'll I'll actually, if I really think they're distracted enough, I'll sit down next to them and check their page. <laughs> <laughs> and then the evil me, if it really gets bad, I always I will threaten them with. I'll subtract points, mm. so use it responsibly. Mm. I'm I'm good with that. Mm. You know, it's 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 kind of nice because it can be unobtrusive. If you have a, a wife who's pregnant and going into labor, you kind of want that text to come through. And right. guess what? As your instructor, I do too. Yeah, yeah. you know. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. and it is. It's like it's like having a an army of researchers at your disposal, and it's in its best manifestation. There are times when a question comes up that I don't know the answer to, and I'll turn to the class and say, "Whoever Google's it first gets a gold star." Mm-hmm. Yeah. you know, and mm-hmm. and that's put. The, I mean, let's show what the internet can do for a intellectual discussion, which is bring in information, and we can practice critiquing sources together. Students can say, "Well, I found this," and we can all say, "Okay, now where'd you find that?" Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. who posted that? What's right. that? I mean, it's a real hands-on practice of these skills yeah i think the academy is is pretty much in the no phones in the classroom they're just really damaging moment right now but i'm starting to see some other stuff come out like people who are disabled find them very helpful too Mm -hmm. and so there are like lynn said all these different things you're doing on that phone Mm -hmm. you can't just assume you're just checking out sometimes you're really checking in right well, we have uh, we've reached the, the end of our uh, hour, so it's it's gone uh, flown by as always. So thank you so much. We've been talking with uh, Lynn McNeil, assistant professor of English, and uh, Jeannie Thomas, head of the English department at USU. They're co-directors of the USU Digital Folklore Project, and uh, the 2017 Digital Trend of the Year survey results are out. We've been talking about that. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Tomorrow we're going to be talking about privacy. Um, privacy, especially in this digital age. There are a couple of University of Utah professors out with a book from Oxford University Press. It's called Privacy, What You Need to Know. And uh, that is the program tomorrow. Hope you'll join me then. Thanks for listening today. This week on This American Life, Drew picked up her ninth grader and his friend from school right after she read her son's texts. They were so happy that day when they got in the car. And all I'm thinking is, oh, my God. It's just in a couple of minutes when I have to turn left. That's all I kept thinking about it's just going to all come crashing down, and I don't know if I'm strong enough to do this. That's this week. Join us Saturday morning at 11 on Utah Public Radio. This is Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM Logan. Also heard online at upr.org.